thank you very much to uh, Rebecca Stewart, who's joined us tonight from Queensland. Tonight's session is on the communication toolbox, supporting and educating overseas trained doctors. Now, you've obviously seen the pivot that has occurred with the department uh, requiring um, non-AGPT overseas trained doctors to be engaged in a practice eligible pathway or, or an independent pathway. So there is significant policy triggers, if you like, that have indicated that, that it's important to be supporting our non-AGPT uh, trainees um, and doctors through um, towards fellowship. So hence why we've done tonight's webinar, or rather why uh, Rebecca has joined us. So um, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this meeting is taking place and pay respects to their elders past and present and their families. Over to you, Rebecca. Yeah, so hi everyone and, and thanks for um, coming along tonight. Um, so basically tonight I'm going to take you through a guided tour of communication toolbox, which is a it's an excellent resource that was developed um, quite some time ago in a in a paper format. It was a big purple box and GPSA asked me to um, modularize it last year um, so that it would be easier to, to use for everyone. So just by way of introduction, I wear quite a few hats in terms of general practice and medical education, but the two relevant ones for tonight are that I run the practice experience program for general practice training Queensland, and I also um, do some private medical education consultancy work, um, mainly working with doctors that are having difficulty with APRA and with the college exams, and I do quite a lot of work and research in the area of working with doctors that have trained overseas. So some of the things I'd like to take you through tonight, I'd like to just get have you, have you get an understanding of the common characteristics and challenges faced by overseas trained doctors in comparison to Australian trained doctors. I want to take you through how to find and navigate through the communication toolbox. And we're going to look at some, some of the references that we think or the activities that we think are of the highest value in the toolbox because it is, it's quite a very comprehensive document and or a set of documents um, and so it's a matter of using it and finding out which of the tools in there are going to be more, most useful for your for your learning and your teaching environment so just to start off with you know just i just want you to think for a moment what it's like to to live in a foreign culture and living and working there so you're separated from your family and friends you've got to find new accommodation find new schools for your kids jobs for your partners you know, you've got to communicate professionally and personally in a different language and, and most importantly, thinking about how you adjust to the medical culture of that country. How do you go about learning the, the medical um, structures and systems in that new country um, when you intend to work there? Because I think that's a very big challenge for doctors coming to work in, in Australia. There's very um, little coordinated information about how you how you learn about the medical culture and the systems in Australia. We take that for granted because we've been educated as undergraduates and postgraduates in that system. But would anybody like to put a comment just in the chat box about how what was the most effective way they learned about, say, Australian medical culture? Yeah, peers and non-medical people, practice managers, so watching other doctors. Yet induction and orientation, that's really important as well. Finding the resources is really important. And, and one of the other things that I've noticed since working more in this area is that there doesn't seem to be a um, centralised advocacy information portal for doctors that have come from overseas. So there's various bits and pieces on the AMA website and the various 
the Web Force Agency websites, but there doesn't seem to be as a central um, repository of information, which I think would be really important and also important for networking and collegiality um, and sharing of experiences. So perhaps that's something we could troubleshoot in the future. Dr. Connect, yep, is pretty good. So I'll just um, might go into just a little bit more detail about the practice experience program, which is why um, information such as in this web webinar is becoming more important. You may have seen um, GPSA did a, a webinar a little while back, um, Genevieve Yates presented it on the PET program. So at the moment, there's 150 participants across Australia and the mid-year intake has just closed. Um, that is the last PEP intake without a entrance or selection process. So from now on, there will be a selection process for PEP. From 2022 onwards, all doctors completing RSCGP fellowship must either do the AGPT pathway or PEP. So pretty much all of the other pathways will be amalgamated into PEP. So it'll be AGPT or PEP. The, the most important distinction between PEP and AGPT is that PEP is an education program. It is not a training program. So it is not funded to the same extent as AGPT. The PEP doctors don't have a formal supervisor. They don't have to work in an accredited training practice. And there is no requirement for practices to involve the doctors in teaching sessions. But of course, we, we fully encourage that you would do that. The requirements, so they either do at the moment, they're either doing a 12 or an 18 month program where they have to produce, uh, have to complete education modules they do the multi-source feedback process, some case-based discussions and some mini ECT visits. They're not able to sit the exams whilst they're on the program. However, their existing successful exam attempts are, are suspended. So for those at the moment, for those that, that have passed one exam component and are having difficulty passing other components, that's, that's a, a good incentive to join their PEP program because it gives them an opportunity to just stop, reassess where they're at, keep their existing exam attempt and just get a good focus on, on tackling their, their next exam hurdle. Uh, and the other very important aspect is that the PET program is a 3GA provider pathway. So um, doctors are actually able to get a, um, a 3GA provider number through PEP now. How long is the PEP provider number valid? I'll try and answer the questions as I go, but I might not be able to keep up. That's up to the jurisdiction of, of the ROCGP who is issuing them. So it depends on the, the type of practice they're working in, all sorts of different factors. So the, the RTOs that run PEP have no control over the provider numbers. That's all decided centrally by the ROCGP. But the PEP provider number, to my knowledge, is valid for the time of the period on PEP and then for six months after if they do pass one of the exams it, it allows you to finish the PEP program and then whilst you're on PEP enroll and sit and still have a provider number. Just to put things into context and I'm sure you're all aware of this so a quarter of the Australian medical workforce are doctors that have trained overseas so that, that's quite a large number and particularly in rural areas 40% of the rural medical workforce have trained overseas. So as educators and supervisors, we really need to think about how we can use education in this group. So this slide is just to, to get you to think about how cultural values and perceptions impact on our clinical care. Thinking about communication, so linguistic issues, so um, having a strong accent, using grammar that's um, not appropriate, problems with articulation and vocabulary. When you add that to other communication difficulties, and I call it a difficulty in our 
context, but it might be culturally absolutely appropriate. So it's it's a matter of just realising how when you combine a few of those things, it can have a really big impact on picking up on cues and connecting with patients. And a sort of consultations, therefore, which that might cause a, a challenge in is um, mental health presentations, particularly if culturally that has been managed in a in a um, in a, a different manner in the country of origin. Things like hyperactivity and behavioural um, difficulties with children, domestic violence. So all of those difficult consultations become even more difficult when combined with these these other difficulties, which which may not be a difficulty per se. It's just um, a different way of practising. So just, just thinking about your own experience of, of working with doctors that have um, trained overseas and particularly ed- working in an educational sense or as a supervisor, what sort of things, and you don't have to poll if you don't feel comfortable with this one, but just maybe if you felt comfortable picking the one that you found to be the most predominant. There's a few there about bias and B, which talking at rather than with the patient which may be um, due to, you know, a communications style rather than an error in itself. And so is E, which is absolutely understandable. Yeah, and the directive style rather than conversational. And we'll have a look at why that is in a minute. So the the first thing I'm going to show you is just the communication toolbox itself. So if you go to the GPSA uh, website, you go to the Educational Resources Communication Skills Toolkit, there are six sections. So the first section is a general introduction to teaching and learning. Module one, orientation to general practice in Australia. Module two, structure of the consultation, challenging consultations, language competencies and written language. And in each of those, and I won't go through them in detail, but I'll just show you this first one. They're divided into subsections. If you go into those, um, one of the really useful things um, to know about as a supervisor is rather than having to go work through the whole module again to find the resources, you can just click on this resources link on the right and it's got a list of all the resources that that are just hyperlinked so that you can just open the one that that you need. So that makes it a lot faster to find things. So this first worksheet is called Supervisor Awareness in Cross-Cultural Supervision. This one is, is a good one to do for your own benefit just to think about how you might approach teaching differently if you have both AMG and IMG learners in the practice. So you can see it just goes through and it really it just raises your awareness to some of the other things you may need to think about. Okay, so I'm going to just stop for a moment and just explain a little bit about the differences um, or the, the key concepts that you need to consider in the way um, in which the majority of doctor, the doctors that have trained overseas train or are educated compared to the way we do things in Australia. And, and this may seem self-evident, but I think um, it really explains some of the difficulties that the doctors have in their consultation skills, but more importantly, in tackling the exams. So we have these concepts of Socratic and Confucian styles of learning, and I'll go into them in detail, and then also the stages of com- competence. And the, the communication skills module goes through this in, in quite a bit of um, detail if you want um, some more background and it has some articles and things. Most um, countries overseas train their medical students in Confucian conceptions. So that's excluding New Zealand, Canada, America, 
South Africa, uh, there are some Southeast Asian countries that don't use it, but the majority do, um, Ireland, Great Britain. And I guess another role, another hat that I wear is that for the college, I compare the curriculums of, of various countries so that we can decide how much merit to give doctors when they're entering entering training in Australia. And so it is, it's fascinating to just look at the different ways that medicine is taught. So in Confucian, so the, te the teacher is, is the boss. So their say is the last say. There is this whole concept of um, saving face. There is a hierarchical nature to the medical school. I guess it's a bit like the medical school I remember from 20-something years ago, even in Australia. The, the, listener, um, the listener has responsibility for communication, but really no, um, no role to initiate it. Learning takes pl place through practice and memorisation. And that's one of the key difficulties with the exam, I think. Teaching and learning is measured by the organisation, not by the learner. There is a collective consciousness and knowledge is acquired from authority. So on the other hand, the Socratic uh, method of learning. So we have the teacher as the model or the centre, but it's more like a community of practice. So the, the teaching is more informal. Um, there is more equality between the teacher and the learner. The speaker or the writer has responsibility for communication, learning takes place through interaction and that's a huge construct that we need to, to consider that the concept of problem-based learning does not exist in Confucian conceptions. So um, teaching and learning is measured by performance of, of the learner but also of the teacher. There is a very a big focus on adult learning so um, individually orientated learning and skills in learning are deemed important. So I'm seeing some interesting Interesting comments there, and there's a great one there about are the other colleges stuck in the Confucian stage? And I think we can probably all think of some um, that are. Perhaps, perhaps that's a good thing sometimes because um, perhaps their, their individual specialty requires um, that different approach um, and a very structured and methodical and hierarchical approach but certainly it doesn't fit with general practice. And, and this is why just in, you know, I see this all the time in learners, just, um, you know, being able to regurgitate, you know, Murtar check the last five years of AFP, that just will not work in the exam because we examine through Socratic concepts. So, and the, the, the other underpinning is thinking about reflective practice in Confucian aspects, reflective practice, it doesn't exist. So why, why would you reflect on your practice? if um, you have no control over your learning. So if we look at the stages of competence, I mean, in medical school, we don't know what we don't know. And that's why we can't work independently. And we have a hierarchy of senior clinicians that can give us guidance as to what we should know. As an intern, you, you're aware of what you need to learn. So you're consciously incompetent, incompetent and you actively seek guidance and how to do this. And then moving into your vocational training, you're still consciously incompetent. Um, but you've got other cues on which to make clinical decisions. So you've, you've gained more experience so that you can pick up those nuances of patients. You can look at a child that's sick and, and decide that, you know, what the information that you've taken, that history that you've taken doesn't fit with your gut feel about what's going on. And most importantly, in that stage, they're learning, you know, when to ask for help. So around the time of, of fellowship, we're hoping that doctors are achieving conscious competence. 
they're still inexperienced and they need to think through things, but they're confident in the process and they can reflect upon their knowledge. If you've completed your primary medical qualification in Australia and entered GP training in PGY 3 or 4, which is the usual process, you're usually quite inexperienced still in your medical career. So the, the literature says that it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert. That's a long time. And if you, if you try and work that out in terms of a newly graduated doctor who's working a 40-hour week, that means that you need to be at least five years post-grad to even start becoming an expert in an area. If you think about um, the stages of entry of GP training, so most Australian graduates enter GP training quite early. Most overseas trained doctors are sitting in the exams quite a bit later. They're already at that conscious competence stage, but perhaps in their country of origin or in a particular working environment. So this, this differing stage has a very big impact on, on an exam approach. And then post-fellowship, we go on to develop unconscious competence. So we just practice without thinking based on our skills and on our experience that we've um, developed over time. And just an interesting concept, what if you've developed this unconscious competence before you commence your training in general practice. And as I said, you know, if you've been, if, if you've trained overseas and you worked in numerous countries and then you come to Australia and you're thinking in an automated way, this can impact on the way that you approach your practice, but also assessment processes. So we know that, that experienced clinicians or experts um, use pattern recognition to make a diagnosis. When we find a more difficult case, we tend to um, use our gut feel to, to realise that it doesn't quite fit. And then we swap to making a hypothesis to try and solve the problem. And, and that's one of the issues with, with assessment processes is that when we're sitting at an assessment, we're diagnosing in a vacuum. All we have are the words on the page to tell us when to use one diagnostic pro process or not. And uh, if, you, if you misread those cues, those words on the page, or if things like your pattern recognition and, and the sorts of patients that you're seeing, that's called availability bias, changes your perspective, you can miss the, the, the constructs of the question. It can be very difficult, if, particularly if you're an experienced clinician, and we know that you know, doctors, um, the older doctors get, them, the more and the more experienced they are, the more difficulty they have sitting the exams. So it's very hard to, to unthink your thinking. Um, that is true because, um, you, you know, you're working, overseas trained doctors work um, longer in the hospital system too. So that changes the context in which you, you approach the problem. So there's been postulated this fifth stage of thinking now. It's called reflective competence. So that's right at the top of the pyramid. When we get to reflective competence, it, it gets us to, it, it's core to us thinking about, well, okay, we've reached this stage of we're unconsciously competent, but we do need to be able to go backwards and forwards and learn new things and still realise when we need to ask for help. So that, that learning pyramid that I showed you before is not static and you need to be able to move, they say that you should be able to move up and down the pyramid at least twice before you, you've developed mastery of a learning process. So if, you, if, you're, um, if you've never been, if your medical education has never involved a reflective process, how, you know, how difficult must it be to move up and down that, that pyramid of learning? And I mean, I guess that's why we do professional development. 
um, and CPD is because it's it's to challenge that unconscious competence and get us to reflect on do we actually know this or what are the areas that we that we take for granted. Even if we're unconsciously competent, the research suggests that there's still 20% of our practice that we don't know about and that that 20% is not fixed. So that's that's quite a, a, a scary thought. So what I'm going to do now is just take you through the top um, 10 resources. Um, and I guess I work quite closely with the um, English as a second language um, specialist in the RTO that I work for. And she has um, she's assisted me in finding these. And we've presented this workshop previously to, to supervisors and, and medical educators, and they found them useful. So the purposes of the presentation, I've put them all on one slide so that afterwards people can use the hyperlinks to find them easily. So this first one is looking at, you know, how often do we actually ask the person that's come into our practice that we're going to be um, working with, whether this be a registrar or an um, overseas trained doctor, how often do we ask them, how did you learn? You know, what was the learning system in which you undertook your training? You know, how do you like to learn? What if the way you like to teach is different to the way they like to learn? But often we don't stop to consider that until there's some learning issues so this can be done, it's interesting to do it for yourself, for starters, so that you can realise how you, how you learnt medicine, but then ask your, ask your doctor to do it as well, your trainee, so that, so that you can have a good understanding of how to pitch their education. Um, the other good thing about this is it's great to, um, to put in, the learning, in their learning plan or their plan for learning because it identifies there is very much a focus when you're often when you're doing um, a plan for learning with an overseas trained doctor on the the clinical domains of practice um, because that's that's the usual way in which they learnt and so this is a good way of exploring some you know the non-core knowledge domains to put in their plan for learning so the next one is is in module two which is thinking about um, the different consultation structures this one goes through you know again things that we take very much for granted looking at different words um, that the doctor can use to proceed through the consultation. So um, some of the skills that I find um, need tweaking, particularly with doctors um, having difficulty with OSCE, is the concept of signposting, stopping at regular intervals during the consultation to mark the key points in the consultation for the patient and for themselves and also summarising. The ability to do that can help with reflective processes because it gives the doctor an opportunity to stop and synthesise the information before they proceed with the consultation. The other difficulty I find is that from a linguistic perspective, the doctor may not have the words to express empathy or to change the questioning during the consultation. So that's where this, this sheet is very good because it, it's practical in terms of what are some other ways, what are some other words that you can use as you go through the consultation. So, you know, a common, a common way to respond empathically is to say, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that. However, it does not always fit the nuances of the consultation. So providing some additional words can be really helpful. And, you know, it may well be that the doctor just needs one or two phrases that they feel confident using. And, you know, if they, if they try and use those a few times, they get a good response from the patients. That um, can be very empowering in terms of their communication skills. And this one here is on um, building a relationship with patients. So it goes through different ways in which we can, they call the intervention categories. It's, they're ways that we can influence behavioural change with patients. So there are doctor and patient-centred inter interventions, 
for doctors that have been trained in more Confucian manners, they tend to um, migrate towards the doctor-centred interventions, um, which are less motivational interviewing style, just even just raising a, an awareness of the different ways in which to approach things. So the cathartic style is, is just let the patient talk and knowing that that's okay. There's also the catalyst, which is, you know, working, it's more motivational interviewing and, and allowing the patient to realise that they have some control and some autonomy in their decision making. So that's a, that's a great handout as well. Just going to go back to the slide for a minute, and um, because this isn't in the communication toolbox, but it's a, a tool that I've found very, very useful, especially in the area of, of helping doctors prepare for OSCE. So, um, as I mentioned before, we often underestimate the complexities of expressing the nuances of emotions. You can see there, you know, there are there are six main emotions in the middle there. But look at all of the different words and the way that they can change, the way that you can use them as an exemplar of that emotion. When I first looked at this wheel, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I, I didn't realise there were that many descriptive emotive words in the English language. But imagine if you, if you are um, trying to negotiate those empathic responses and, and, and English is not your first language, how, how confronting that would be. You know, um, I've used this word in a couple of different ways. I've used it in terms of OSCE preparation and saying, well, you know, that word didn't quite sound right. Let's have a look at the wheel and see if we can find another word that might be more appropriate. But the other way that you can use it is, is just in, in giving, it, giving it to your learner and saying, hey, you know, next time you're, um, we meet, I want you to just identify which of these words that you're feeling. So it just gives them an extended repertoire of, of tools that they can use in their communication skills. It's also good for patients too in helping them identify their emotional um, entities. So I'll move on to these two handouts in a minute, but I just want to make you aware of, um, so that this module three is about challenging consultations and there is a, a great resource on GPSA website. Um, this is the old traditional one from the old toolkit. They're a little box of cards with little case studies on them. And they're, they're just really short. There's about 50 of them, little um, case scenarios on difficult consultations. So you can, you can just pull one of these up um, during a teaching session or give them to the doctor to look through. And they, they just provoke a conversation about how would you manage the consultation. So you can purchase the hard copy versions through GPSA, but they do have a PDF um, that's free to download and you just got to cut the cards up and use them that way. But they're an excellent resource and they're also a good prompt for practising for, for OSCE as well. So hopefully this sheet is sharing. So it's just an information sheet about um, gender diversity, which is, uh, which is a good prompt for, for discussion. But to go with that, there is also a questionnaire about taking a sexual history. And with these, with these more sensitive discussion areas, I, you know, I do think it's worthwhile as, as a teacher for you to do this worksheet before you ask your learner to do it. You may well be surprised at your own responses. Um, and it's important to be aware of those before you discuss them with the learner, but also by you, um, by you participating in the activity, it brings that equality, you know, that more Socratic concept of learning to, to, to the learning experience. Um, and the second, the second lot of cards that I'll show you, so similar to the Dr. Court talk ones, these are called Shades of Grey. So they're ethical dilemmas in practice, and I think there's about 25 of those. MDA 
has done answers to some of these as well. So uh, the appropriate ethical responses from a medico-legal perspective, and those resources are, are available on along with the cards on the on the website again. They're a, a, a great um, prompt for ethical dilemmas because they're nice, quick, short um, teaching activities. So looking at some of this in um, the linguistics, you know, not all doctors will require extra support with um, linguistics. It's worth just knowing where the resources are if you need them. This is just some common words that the docs have trouble with, you know, just so you don't have to think of them yourself. So you can get them to just do and, and, you know, verbalise each word and which one do they have difficulty with. It's, it's something quite reasonably simple to fix once there's an awareness of and modelling of how the word sounds. And so why not? And it can make all the difference between in developing rapport with the patient and also to avoid misunderstanding, you know, in, in consultations, but also um, in circumstances such as the OSCE and also making sure that read, the reading of the words is appropriate. So that, that's important for the KFP and the AKT. The next one, every time I read it, I learn a new one. Um, and, it, and it makes me realise, you know, how do, how do we learn all these Australian slang words? We never actually learn them. We just hear someone say them and use them. And so, you know, how, you know, there isn't a there isn't a, a one-stop shop for for learning slang. So this this is a great exercise to go through for a bit of fun as well, because yeah, always learn something new. And similarly, there's a slang terms in the consultation rooms. All the different um, bizarre words that patients use to describe their various bits of anatomy. And yeah, and I've had some some fun in medical education conferences um, going through these and and trying to match up the word with the expression. So I was just going to show you an example of one of the ethical dilemma slides. So you might want to use um, this card, for example, this is card three of the Shades of Grey. Jason, 22-year-old unemployed, presents on a Friday afternoon, travelled from a remote area, he's been with his friends, he's been chasing the dragon. If you didn't know what that meant, you wouldn't know where to start with that consultation. And it's likely that the patient may not open up to you because they um, don't feel that they've developed rapport. And again, the words cold turkey, we take for granted what that is. And then also just the context of we have an unemployed male in a rural area who is you know, obviously separated from his friends and he's wanting a script for, for some narcotics. So you can see, you know, I, that, that simple scenario can bring up lots and lots of opportunities for which you might want to use um, how to approach a difficult consultation, how do you look at slang, um, how do you look at the context of opioid prescribing in Australia, how do you, you know, so using the card once, you can bring up so many, um, so many learning points. So do the flashcards. Do the flashcards give some background? So the the shades of grey one, some of them um, some of them have um, the model answers from a medico legal perspective, but the doctor talk ones are really a prompt for communication skills. So they don't they don't have the answers. The last one is around um, written language. The last module looks at different language hints and examples so you know how to how to formally write a structured case history this is more for you know um, correspondence so if you were writing a medical report or a referral letter or a legal report um, those sorts of things so that can be really useful to give a template or some structure and importantly an example so there's examples here of what a good one is and that brings me to another key point about modelling. One of one of the key um, concepts of this this Socratic learning that we all are used to is that we get quite used to um, 
watching senior doctors practice, um, having them, you know, if you're a GP registrar, having your senior doctors sit in on you and you sit in on them. And that's, that's quite a, um, we see a lot of modelling. Whereas often for doctors that have trained overseas, you know, they've, they've never had the opportunity to sit in with another GP and another GP has never sat in on them. And that's, that's not part of their learning culture. So it can be quite threatening to propose that. Um, it's a very, very rich um, learning experience if, if you have the opportunity to suggest it or to do it in the practice. And I suppose that's one of the things we're finding with the PEP program is that um, going in and doing a, a case-based discussion or a, um, a mini ECT visit is a very, very, um, or quite a threatening exercise um, for some of the doctors. And yep, here's just a, again, a very practical one on, on writing a referral letter. So, and this is a, actually a plan for a teaching session on how to write a referral letter. So there are, there are teaching plans through the communication skills toolbox um, to, to save you doing the work. I just wanted to show you one other website um, which has got a, a fabulous learning resources and I fibbed about having to flip backwards and forwards again. But this, So this site was developed by Melbourne Uni and it's called Doctors Speak Up and it's got a huge amount of resources on it. I was speaking before about modelling. Um, there are four case studies on this website and that was one of the videos I was going to show you. So you can, you can watch that um, with your doctor and comment from various perspectives on, on how you might manage that consultation. What are the communication things that the doctor has done well? What might they do differently? There are um, on this website as well. So under the navigate are the four videos, but what's really useful is that actually transcribed the videos um, and some of the docs that I've used it with, um, we've actually just printed out the transcriptions and they've gone through with uh, a highlighter and, and said, oh, that's a really good way of saying that. I'm going to say it that way. You know, so um, it's got some great examples of the actual words that you can use. There's, you know, health idioms and, you know, vocabulary terms and how to uh, take an alcohol history. Um, there's a sexual history there as well. So lots of really great, great resources on that website. And that's just um, an example of, of, you know, some of the questions you might ask if you're watching one of those videos or even, you know, um, if, if your doctor is happy to be um, video himself, you could watch the video together and say, well, you know, this is what I think you should keep doing. What do you think you should keep doing that you're doing well? What, what do I think you should do more of, perhaps less of? What are some new things you can try? And then for you as a supervisor to think, oh, are there any some pieces from the toolbox that I could use that could follow up on that activity and make it more useful. That was all I was going to go through tonight. A lot of, a lot of information. What I suggest you do is, you know, when you have some time, just um, have a little wander through the, the toolbox and have a look at the various resources, perhaps print some out. Um, some of the, You may want to print out the ones that I showed you because they're quite useful. You know, try and make your life easier for yourself. All those res great resources are there. So rather than recreate the wheel, um, make the most of, of the ones that are readily available to you. Yeah, just last comment. Um, I, I don't like the whole learning objective thing, but I'd rather know from feedback um, or get you to think about what's the one thing you're going to do differently in your practice after going to this session. Because um, I think it's much more likely if you can just think of one thing and perhaps if you write it down makes it cements it even more you're more likely to go away and do that that was fantastic um Beth, really really appreciate um you coming in and, and uh, giving up your time this evening i uh, hope that you've all found that useful as well there is so much to this particular topic i find 
um, and you've, all you've got to do is go through and have a look at all of the resources attached to the toolbox to understand just how many different dimensions to this there are. Um, I know that yourself and I have spoken about this previously, um, Rebecca, about the, the, the things that the learners that you work with that are struggling to pass the KFE and, and uh, other exams uh, in Australia, but are there a couple of things in particular that you would note about the things that, that uh, overseas trained doctors find challenging about those examinations? So as I said, it's it's mainly that, you know, the, the way the KFP and the, and the AK, AKT are written are to, you know, that the core of those tests is to, is to test your clinical decision skills. So they're to test that hypothetical deductive reasoning. And if you go into the exam with the mindset of, you know, if you're a very experienced practitioner and you're um, used to um, pat pattern recognising as the core of your practice, and especially if, um, you know, as I said, the exam, you're diagnosing in a vacuum, you haven't got all those other cues to tell you when something's not right. You know, it, it little little things like not um, deciphering the stem of the question appropriately and not double checking the things that you might be missing um, make all the difference. Thank you all very much for joining us. Thanks you, to you, uh, Rebecca, for joining us again. Another fantastic presentation. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'd also obviously like to acknowledge funding and support that is uh, provided through the Australian Government's Department of uh, Health uh, through the AGPT program for GPSA. None of these webinars uh, would be possible without that funding and support, so we'd like to acknowledge their support. Thank you all once again, and we look forward to seeing you at a future webinar again.